of Luna is a podcast with me, Bridget Ingalls, as your host. Here we have conversations with real live present day goddesses who are actively and courageously doing their magical work in the world. Each episode is a bewitching journey with relevant discussions on topics such as Wiccan pagan spirituality, writing, culture, magical practices, art, ritual, and the craft in its many forms. Welcome to the Oracle of Luna. Today's guest, we have Katie Gerard. Katie is a satyr seer, author of The Satyr, The Gate is Open, and Odin's Gateways, and she's a satyr teacher and spiritual coach. Welcome, Katie. Hello, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited, uh, really excited to have you on the show. And um, uh, how are you doing today? Yeah, not bad. It's um, It's been really hot in the UK. So I'm quite lucky to be by the coast, which makes it much more bearable, as it were. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. Well, I have a lot of questions for you. And um, I'm just going to jump right in. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm just curious, how how did it all begin? How did your interest in Norse witchcraft and, and specifically Seder practice come about? Um, were you influenced? Uh, I mean, did it, were you influenced by a family member or some, some place like at school or tell us a little bit about your early beginnings? Because I, I think it's important because that's how, you know, we're shaped in the, you know, that's what shapes us. <laughs> Yeah, so um, basically, I was one of those teenagers who was really interested in and obsessed with kind of spirituality, with the occult and with, you know, witchcraft and stuff like that. So I spent a, a lot of time as a teenager sort of in the mind body spirit section of the local library and just went through lots and lots of books and I discovered witchcraft and paganism and thought yeah this sounds brilliant this sounds like the sort of thing I want to do it was before people really used the internet widely it was like right back in the light in the late 90s yeah and I was lucky enough actually to go to um, a university where basically they had a pagan society on campus so I was able to meet people who were you know identified as witches who identified as pagan and while I was there I um, I had a, a friend who I lived with who had started getting interested in the Norse tradition as well. Mm. So we mm. were both from a place in, in Britain called Essex, which is very kind of Anglo-Saxon based. So we were looking at how do we get... So we were 
at university in Wales, and Wales obviously has a lot of Celtic stuff and ah. you know, lots of great um, Welsh deities and things. And we're yeah. thinking, but how do we get? How do we get in touch with our own? You know, our own land. And um, so, through the wanting to get interested in the Saxon stuff, I then started getting interested, getting interested in the Norse deities and the Norse traditions and. It was basically one line in a book. And I can't remember <laughs> how the book was. I think it might have been the um, Kvendalf Gunderson book. But it, it, I think maybe Teutonic Magic or something like that. My, my memory is bad. But uh-huh. it basically sort of said, um, Seath is the female version of the Norse tradition magic. And I thought wow that sounds really interesting that's what I want to do and you know it was a time in the late 90s where everything was really gendered and you know obviously there's absolutely no reason why women couldn't be doing you know galdra and runes and symbols and things like that but just the thought of something being more feminine, um, being, you know, more more witch orientated, kind of really sparked my interest. And I, it was like, you know, something going off in my brain, like a spark, where I went, "Oh, that's what I want to do." Ah. But of course, you know, we didn't we didn't know anything about this. We didn't know where to find any more information. We had no idea even how to pronounce it so (laughs) my my friend was actually doing anglo-saxon studies at the time he was doing a a degree in medieval history so he went to find his anglo-saxon teacher and said how do you pronounce this which is why I pronounce it differently to pretty much everyone else in the world because (laughs) it was basically this Anglo-Saxon teacher went well this is how I think you would pronounce it and we just went with that so yeah we then looked for as much information as possible there wasn't very much Um, another friend actually printed off a page from the um, Harathna the Diana Paxson website And again, you know, where we didn't have a computer Well, we had computers in the house, but we didn't have access to the Internet at home in those days. In order to get the Internet, I had to sort of go on to campus, which wasn't very far, but wasn't something we tended to do, you know, to use the to search for things I didn't know how to research things in days I you know Google didn't exist so yeah sure um, my friend was much much better at this than I was and they basically just handed us this page from the internet and we went okay let's try let's try this and um you know, as the years went on, I found, you know, the Jenny Blaine book came out, which was really helpful. Um, I finally got my hands on the Jan Fries book, Sideways. And then I learned how to research. So once I had the better book, so once I had like Sideways and um, the Jenny Blaine book, I had a list of sagas and things that yeah mentioned in so I was able to then spend a bit more time doing research right and, um finding 
more about it to then try and cobble something together with the little information that I had. Yeah. But at that time, were you also practicing um, in a circle or coven, a pagan or Wiccan coven and doing a witchcraft or was it purely research at this point? So we, we were really, really lucky to have a pagan site on campus. So basically the university had an area of land that they had been told they needed to clean up. So they were using it as a dump and they said to us, okay, so I think one of the people from the um, society had gone to the campus and said, look, you know, every religion has their place to worship apart from pagans. And we had, so there wasn't, you know, we probably had about sort of 10% of the university signed up to the pagan society. They didn't all attend wow. regularly. That's pretty good. But it, <laughs> it was a huge amount of people. So yeah. they were able to say, look, you know, we need somewhere. So they basically gave us this small piece of campus and said, if you tidy it up, you can have it. So it then became a pagan site. So as a group, we were putting on rituals, we were were behaving like a, a coven, but in a more sort of inclusive way. Yeah. So basically, we had to be open for anybody who wanted to turn up. So yeah. it's really good. That's great. Um, it's a great way to learn. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. You know and, and get an uh, idea of what, what resonates with you, uh, with your spirituality, too. It's awesome. Absolutely. And being out in the Welsh countryside was such a wonderful way to learn witchcraft. Yes. Then, um, I met during the time at university in my last year of university, I was initiated into a Wiccan coven. And then I was practicing Wicca. And from that point, a lot of the so we were we were practicing our own version of seeds. So we were sort of experimenting a bit at home. Um, but from the point where I joined the Wiccan Coven, I then had a much stronger position to be able to learn seeds from and to be able to kind of have people who were interested, but also were very magically and um you know, ritually able. So yeah, uh, I'm very, very lucky with that coven had a lot of really, really strong ritualists in. So um, that really helps, you know, to have a group or a circle that you're really comfortable working with that, that gets it and knows how to raise energy and um, communicate and, you know, the alchemy, create alchemy. It's super, super important. (laughs) Absolutely. And as I sort of met war witches, as I did more around London, so eventually I um, sort of, I led a coven in London and was able to, I then started a a small Seath group. So there was a lot of people here. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And... And they were, and they, did they also, were those people um, in the coven involved or interested in Norse shamanism or Norse mythology? So some were and some weren't. So um, it was, 
it was a very eclectic coven so we all sort of um worked with what each other were interested in so we had a couple of people in the coven who were really interested in Egyptian stuff um somebody who was you know really really knowledgeable in um Welsh mythology and Welsh witchcraft yeah so we all sort of worked with each other and you know I was really really lucky to be part of so many groups of people who just were really really able to let me experiment so yeah. Um, yeah. you know it really sounds like a great community and and different than I, maybe maybe I'm wrong but the London scene a uh, pagan scene or Wiccan scene seems a lot more um mainstream than I would say here in the states uh back then um so it's really cool that you had that great support and community at that time yeah, I mean, I would say, I definitely wouldn't say that the London pagan scene has ever really been mainstream. Mm. I think the thing that we have within Wicca in the UK, um, especially, is that we, you know, Alexandrian and Gardnerian yeah. are very much mixed together. There's no, the brand, the, the strain of which part of Wicca that I was involved with was um, progressive Wicca. So progressive mm. Wicca was always very much more um, mixed. It was very much more sort of, you know, inclusive. Right. Very much more. So, um, you know, the things that I witness in the US at the moment within Wicca just, it's a world apart from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we don't have as many rules. We don't have that expectation. There's, you know, if you yeah. are Gardnerian and you want to join an Alexandrian coven, well, lots of our covens are mixed heritage anyway. So, yeah, people would look at you and go, well, we're just Wiccan. Yeah. But if you're Alexandrian and you want to join a Gardnerian coven, you would never be reinitiated. You would just right. be all the same. So, yeah. I well, I'm a Dianic that. witch and um, priestess. So, I was. Um, you know, involved in covens, Dianic covens um, for 10 years and then started my own circle. But at my own circle, there was definitely a lot of eclectic witches and, you know, um, some were Dianic and some weren't. But um, the point is you learn and you grow and you evolve with your spirituality. So that's, you know, and then it, everybody's stronger for it. Absolutely. I think the more the more inclusive and the more welcoming you are. Yeah the stronger yeah. everything is yeah so getting back to seder um <laughs> it's pronounced i i i see it s-e-i-d-r which is a form of norse uh shamanism where there's a seer and there's a certain structure and could you talk about you know a seder or seeth uh ritual and kind of what are the steps and how does it differ from like a wicca um you know wiccan ritual because it seems like from your book um it seems like there's some overlap and the types of you know the steps in a seder or seeth rite except that usually there isn't a seer or vulva so um anyway could you talk a little bit about a seeth or seder rite well i think you know in so the way that I use the term is basically to describe anything that's been talked about 
in the Norse sagas as being seeds. So, yeah, and the Norse sagas are, are the Icelandic sagas and Eddas. Is that correct? Yeah. So the so the Eddas, there's less about Seath in the Eddas. Okay. It's more so the sagas are basically like family histories. So it's people telling stories about their ancestors and their family. So the Norse had a, a thing where if you kept a person's memory alive, then they never died. So you right. kept person's spirit alive by keeping their memory alive so you have these great intricate family histories that people have put together and this has come originally from sort of oral history and then it's been written down so yeah the tales are it's really interesting yeah um, part of the thing I talk about in the book is how much the Norse believed in Seath, how much they believed in the witchcraft. So it's sometimes I think we look at it as being everything that's written down was absolutely what they believed. Right. Right. But, you know, you look at some of our stories and some of our tales and you look at fairy stories, there's a lot of supernatural stuff that's involved in that that we're not necessarily believing as being definitely this happened so Mm -hmm. yeah so some of the deities that you invoke um uh are definitely from the viking age um and we talk about in your book uh freya odin and hell and um so i guess what i'm interested in knowing is like from the icelandic sagas how do you derive a satyr right in 2022, um, did you do a lot of research um, with the Icelandic sagas for inspiration and use that for inspiration in what you currently practice? So I, a lot of the Seath that I put together was using um, other traditions and other things that still existed. So it's a really interesting thing because, you know, in 2022, the way I put it together would possibly be very different to the way I put it together in 2002, for example. So I think, you know, we are so much more knowledgeable now about things like cultural appropriation and things like that. Plus, we've got access to a lot more um, rituals and a lot of different ways that things are done. So um, I think the way that I would put it together now would be very different to the way that I would have put it together in 2002 when these rights were just sort of starting to yeah. together. But so, it's kind of based on what you've learned through your research and also reading the Icelandic hmm. sagas, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and also kind of looking at what other people were doing. So looking right. at like um you know Annette Host for example there's a a PhD thesis that was written I so sorry I can't remember the name of the author now um but she was looking at um the group Yggdrasil in right. I think it was Norway sorry um yeah. 
So um, the work that Annette hosted to um, create something that was really shamanic based and the work that Diana Paxson did to create something that was more sort of ritualistic and, and better to show to groups of people who were beginners. Yeah. So I looked at the way that both they had created the high seat, but also looked at um things like voodoo, uh, things like the um, descriptions of the Welsh Arwenithian tradition, the mm. Um, mm. Um, spay craft tradition. Mm. That's a lot um, of influences. Yeah. Pretty things cool. Like, um, yeah. The Greek um, oracles. Yeah. The, the, the Irish kind of being wrapped in bull hides traditions and stuff. Right. So, I looked really widely at yeah. other things that were happening and things that were still live and and still happening, you yeah. know, traditions that still existed, but also stories from the past. Right. So, but um, one of the key one of the key threads um, that I see um, can tell is that journeying and inner trance work is used and that is um pretty key to shamanism across the board in many societies but um it's a great way to achieve inner transformation and when you go into trance um in seeth or seder a seder rite um that is used the seer is is prophesizing right and divining um from other like deities such as odin and and freya and hell um but they also call upon the desires i guess are which are ancestral female spirits i think it's all just fascinating and i encourage the uh, my listeners to do their own research and actually read um katie's great book Seder: the gate is open because it's so fascinating just the fact that you can go so deep into trance work and go through the different gateways and levels that part i find very fascinating um it's just very it's such a seems like such a very unique um spiritual experience yeah i mean i think a lot of so like see the gate is open was written you know, decades ago. So yeah. <laughs> my experience has sort of developed a little bit since then. So I've, you know, I've learned hypnotherapy now. Right. I'm, you know, studying for a, a master's in psychology. So a lot of, it's interesting, a lot of what I was kind of cobbling together, I now understand a little bit more about what's happening to the brain right. while you doing this work so right. the thing I see is that a lot of it really is about the rapport between the audience and the seer so having that really deep connection and having that space sort of held by the person that's running the right in order to really kind of have that deep connection it mm -hmm. really is very a kind of soul to soul experience where you know your core self is connecting with the core self of the people in the core selves of the people in the group mm. and you're able to really access and I mean I a lot of the seeth work that I do is very much based on ancestor work so mm. I and that's something that I have 
worked a lot more with now with my work as a hypnotherapist. That's so, interesting. Um, That's interesting because um, I'm curious if your clients come to you with uh, with uh, wanting to know more about their ancestors in wanting to do trance work or inner journeying. Is that do you find that to be true? <laughs> so a lot of it is actually about having so there, there's this thing sort of called transgenerational trauma so it's about understanding how the experiences of your ancestors have shaped the way that your yes. belief systems and your yes life i've heard of that it can be in your dna yeah yeah that's right so there's a lot more that we understand now that maybe we didn't definitely not in 2002 so we sort of the work that we do in seas in order to communicate with the ancestors is then replicated a lot in when you go into a deep trance in hypnotherapy and you look at the experiences that your ancestors have which are then part of your soul memory and part of what shapes even if you just look at the way that your parents parented you affects the way that you parent affects you know they were affected by the way their parents parented and and on and on even if you just look at it as belief system yeah you know there is like you say there is evidence now to show with work that's being done and research that's being done on um Holocaust descendants and also now the grandchildren of um, the survivors from 9-11. So we wow. can see that yeah. there's certain things in your brain that change sure. if your parents experience trauma before you were right. born. Right. So interesting. Have, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's fascinating. fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um so I was just going to ask um, a little bit about um, how you go about invoking um, a, a deity. I mean, uh, say you you are a, a seer, correct? You're you're That's a correct. seer. So in Seder, you are becoming or you are mingling with these deities. Um, how does that feel? I mean, I'm I'm just curious. How does that feel to be that deep in a trance state to? speak or communicate with deities so it's it's interesting because it's been it's so long ago that i started this work <laughs> i started doing more more kind of spiritualist type work with spirits first before i started yeah deities. so you know you're you're talking about you know, as a teenager, starting yeah. to do this trance work and starting to, you know, do the shamanic journeying. So it feels so much a part of my brain makeup. Right. It's like, you know, it's like saying to somebody who runs, you know, how does it feel? <laughs> or how does yeah. it feel? To, yeah. You know, what are you thinking about when you cook a meal, when you develop a new recipe? It's some things become so much a part of your, yeah. your makeup. It sounds your... like it's very instinctive for you. I was just trying to get a picture of it for my listeners who are not familiar with Seder or Seth or Norse witchcraft, <laughs> how, how a seer becomes a seer and what it feels like. 
I think when you're so when I'm when I'm training seeds, so when I'm teaching people how to be seers, what I talk about is I talk about really sort of being, you know, having a lot of fluidity in your energy. It's about being able to step back. So it's almost sort of a a part dissociative experience where you allow your energy to step back to then let the energy of the deity communicates through you so Ah. it's a very it's a strong connection yeah i see i see where you're going okay and that kind of explains a little bit um to the steps of of a a seder or seth right is that there's you know you purify the space you invoke um deity there's a master ceremony there's drumming there's dancing and swaying there's you know, there's different steps to take you into that, down to that level of of trance state. And I think it's fascinating um, because it, it just, to me, it's it does sound like hypnotherapy in some way or just inner journeying. Um, but it's, it's just very, um, I don't know, it just seems like a very structured type of rite. But in the yeah. end, you're stepping out, like you say, you're stepping out of yourself to mm-hmm. communicate. Yeah, I think it's so the way so the way that, you know, some traditions think about the soul is they think about the soul as kind of breaking down into different aspects. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Egyptian tradition, you know, the Egyptian religion had um, ancient Egypt, I mean, had this idea about the soul going into different parts of de- at death and there are. You know, there are sort of traditions within the Norse where the soul has different parts and those different parts separate on death. And I think we can do the same thing when we do journeying. So a part of our consciousness, a part of our soul is able to to travel. A part of our soul is able to communicate on a different level. So part of what we do in Seath especially is when we're seeing, when we're on the high sea, we're able to have part of our consciousness separated and in the room so we've got a good rapport with the audience but a part of our soul is you know journeyed to Helheim to the realm of the dead where we're able to have rapport and connection with with the spirits that are gathered there so it really is a very it's a compartmentalization where you're able to separate part of consciousness into two places right to have that conversation in two places and that that that's very unique it is and it's such a wonderful experience to 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 connect to those two worlds where well we're we're almost out of time katie but i do want to just to um this is really a fascinating discussion, and I just uh, I'm really just urging my listeners to read your books, and also um, wanted to ask you um, what is your website or where so, uh, social media where people can uh, find out more about you. So my website is katiegerard.com. So I okay. have a little bit of information about my books and stuff on there, a tiny amount about the hypnotherapy and a few things that I'm doing. So I kind of have events and stuff on there. Yeah. And you have some upcoming workshops and events uh, 
let's see that's right that's right okay. so i myself and a friend of mine andre henricus who okay. is very well known more okay. well known than i am probably within kind of heathen circles are running a online training for treadwell's bookshop in oh, wonderful That's wonderful okay so uh, our listeners could potentially uh, attend one of your workshops and yeah yeah so it's okay. a, a full week full week course but um it's really exciting to be able to be teaching online yeah absolutely um, well, anyway, this has been a really, really fascinating discussion with you, and I've learned a lot, and I hope my listeners have learned a lot, and I just really wish you the best of luck in all your future endeavors, and um, uh, just uh, keep on witching. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk yeah. to you. Yeah. Well, blessed be, and um, yeah, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.